So let me kind of kick off and um, kind of give you a bit of understanding of what we're trying to do. Kind of, I guess, you know, we are very much at the beginning of a new season, not just by virtue of schools and all the rest of it, but again, being here in the manner that we are today, there is something new. And then we are inventing on, I guess, as it were, a new endeavor. It's the same mission, but having to kind of reset ourselves and, as it were, refocus ourselves. And so today is kind of entitled as a refocus service. And so I want it to be that, you know, again, maybe to give you some clear direction as to what we intend to do as a church looking forward. Let me start by kind of saying, <laughs> put it this way, the um, Sun Tzu says in The Art of War, may you live in interesting times. We are certainly living in interesting times. I guess you might say that the reason why he states that right at the very beginning of the book is because his book will be irrelevant if you weren't living in interesting times. You may be relieved to know that I'm not going to be reading from Sun Tzu's Art of War today. But I do want us to understand that we are indeed living in interesting times with complex situations. So let me start by saying, you know, this is not the time to be political or to flex allegiances as to what was the right way for the church to have handled the COVID crisis. This is not to say that such a conversation should not happen. It's just that it's not the kind of conversation that one can discuss in a fixed amount of time. As the situation is still evolving and new discoveries are being made, as more data becomes available, it makes sense to not bite off more than we can chew. I believe that no matter what direction you went, it is still apparent, at least to me, that there was no way avoid, of avoiding the changes that COVID and the measures employed to tackle it was destined to make in our lives. There simply is no way you can bury your head in the sand with this matter. The challenge that I do want to pick up is the one that should be of concern to us as we are gathered here on a Sunday morning. How does the changing church continue to relate to its unchanging God? As a point of clarity here, I do not mean that the changing church is by any means a negative term that implies that somehow we are different from the first century church. That which empowered them still empowers us today. What it does mean, however, is that the situations in which we live under, the circumstances around us as the church, are in fact changing. And as such, we are changing in the way that we relate to the world. We have to change the way we put our messages together, how we put ourselves out there. We are in evolving times. And it doesn't mean that we have to, as it were, change the gospel, as some would think, in order to meet the requirements of the culture. It is indeed making sure that the gospel is presented in such a way that the culture still knows it's relevant to it, even though it may be difficult. The 
This adaption of the gospel over time, I think, can be demonstrated by comparing Exodus or the Torah as a whole to the letter to the Hebrews. In that expanse of 1,500 years, what you find happening in the letter to the Hebrews is exactly what Moses was trying to do to the Hebrews 1,500 years later. Everything has changed. But yet, it's how do I make it relevant to the Jews living now? And he couldn't just simply put Deuteronomy or Exodus in front of them. He needed to unpack it in such a way that it was reminded that it was still relevant to today. Throughout the church age, God will adapt his people to the changing circumstances in which they find themselves. Whatever the world-altering event, the invention of the printing press, the Industrial Revolution, world wars, the introduction of smartphones, God will appropriate them to his own purpose. This is as true for us as it was for Israel. The domination of the Babylonian Empire was not a hindrance to God's plan for Israel, but a means by which he intended for it to flourish. And for this reason, this leads us straight into our text today in Jeremiah 44. So if you can turn there. Jeremiah 44. I want to read this, I want to pray, and then obviously we can unpack this. Reading from the ESV, it says this. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Judeans who lived in the land of Egypt at Migdol, at Taphnes, in Memphis, in the land of Paphros. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you have seen all the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, upon all the cities of Judah, Behold, this day they are a desolation, and no one dwells in them because of the evil that they committed, provoking me to anger in that they went to make offerings and serve other gods that they knew not. Neither they nor, their, nor, nor you nor your fathers. Yet I persistently sent, sent to you all my servants, the prophets, saying, Oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their evil and make no offerings to other gods. Therefore, my wrath and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah in the streets of Jerusalem, and they became a waste and a desolation as at this day. Now, thus says the Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, why do you commit this great evil against yourselves to cut off from you man and woman, infant and child from the midst of Judah, leaving you no remnant? Why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt where you have not come to live, where you have come to live, so that you may be cut off and become a curse and a taunt among all the nations of the earth? Have you forgotten the evil of your fathers, the evil of the kings of Judah, the evil of their wives, your own evil, the evil of your wives which they committed in the land of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem? They have not humbled themselves even to this day, nor have they feared nor walked in my law and my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will set my face against you for harm, to cut off all Judah. I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their face to come to the land of Egypt to live, that they shall all be consumed in the land of Egypt. They shall fall by the sword and by famine. They shall be consumed from the least to the greatest. They shall die by the sword and by famine. And they shall become an oath, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. And I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt, as I have punished Jerusalem with a sword, with famine, and with pestilence, so that none of the remnant of Judah who have come to live in the land of Egypt shall escape or survive or return to the land of Judah, to which they desire to return, to dwell there, for they shall not return except some fugitives. 
Then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods and all the women who stood by a great assembly, all the people who lived in Paphros, in the land of Egypt, answered Jeremiah, as for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will do everything that we have vowed, making offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pour out drink offerings to her, as we did both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we have left off making offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. And the women said, When we made offerings to the Queen of Heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, was it without our husband's approval that we made cakes for her, bearing her image and pouring out drink offerings to her? Jeremiah said to all the people, men and women, and all the people who had given him this answer, as for the offering that you're that you offer to the, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your officials and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them? Did it not come into his mind? The Lord could no longer bear your evil deeds and the abominations that you committed. Therefore, your land has become a desolation and a waste and a curse without inhabitant. As it is this day, it is because you made offerings and because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey the voice of the Lord or walk in his law and in his statutes and in his testimonies that this disaster has happened to you as at this day. Jeremiah said to all the people and all the women, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who are of the land of Egypt. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you and your wives have declared with your mouths and are fulfilled with your hands, saying, We will surely perform our vows that we have made to make the offerings to the Queen of Heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her. Then confirm your vows and perform your vows. Therefore hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be invoked by the mouth of any man of Judah in the land of Egypt, saying, As the Lord God lives. Behold, I am watching over them for disaster and not for good. All the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is no end of them. Those who escape the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah. Few in number and all the remnant of Judah who came to the land of Egypt to live shall know those words will stand. Whose, whose words will stand? Mine or theirs? This shall be a sign to you, declares the Lord, that I will punish you in this place, in order that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for harm. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will give Pharaoh, Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies, into the hand of those who seek his life, as I, have give, as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who was his enemy and sought his life. Let's pray. Lord, your word is true. And every other man is a liar that does not agree. And Lord, we are thankful that we have your word to feast on. We have your word in which we may live, Lord God, and survive, as it were. And for this reason, there, Lord God, we come humbly, Lord, saying, Father, speak as your spirit indeed desires to speak to your church. Guide us there, Lord God. Focus our minds, Lord God. Help us to set, as it were, our vision straight so that we know where we are going. Lord, even though we may be few in number, even though we may be a remnant, Lord God, we know that, Lord God, you will raise up your church nonetheless. And so, Lord, as we stand here today, Lord, under your word, we pray that, Lord God, that we will all come to draw near, Lord, receive that which you have given us, and be fed. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to speak there, Lord God. And indeed you shall. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm aware that Jeremiah 44 comes kind of like in a strange way where you're thinking, well, that's all heat rich. But it comes in a context, and I, and I don't want us to be robbed of that context. And to be honest with you, this text captivated me over the last few months, after, over the last month. 
I was reading through my Bible as I was following this, the plan in the ESV, reading through the Bible, and this section of Jeremiah captivated me as I was thinking about this very day. And I was thinking, this is incredibly relevant, but not necessarily in the way that you may think. So what I want to do is I want to kind of backtrack and give you the whole story up until this, because obviously I was not going to be able to sit here and go through, as it were, five chapters of Jeremiah. But this is the tail end. This is the final word that Jeremiah gives. I know it tails on and it obviously ends um, a number of chapters, 51 chapters in Jeremiah, I believe. It ends somewhat later, but this is the final word. Everything you get beyond this is retrospective in the book of Jeremiah. This is the final word that he gives. And it comes after a very long sequence, starting in Jeremiah 39. And what I want to do is I want to take some time to recap that so we gain a context of what Jeremiah has led Jeremiah to state what he has said in chapter 44. So verse, chap, chapter 39 of Jeremiah is about the fall of Jerusalem. Zedekiah is captured, his children killed, and his eyes are put out. After that, Jeremiah is then put under the protection of Gedaliah, who becomes the governor of Judah. So Zedekiah is removed. He's the last king of Israel, Judah, should we say. And in his place, Nebuchadnezzar no longer trusts there to be another king. So he now refers the position of governor on Gedaliah. No more kings in Israel. No more kings in Judah. It's too problematic. Then it brings us into Jeremiah 40. The reformation of Judah. So Nebuzadan, who's the captain of the army, rescues Jeremiah from the court of the guard. So in the last days of Zedekiah, because Jeremiah was preaching so hard against um, Zedekiah's rebellion against um, Nebuchadnezzar, he was put under arrest. So that the people will not hear the message. He particularly was trying to stranglehold the message of God so that people won't know that God wanted them to not resist Nebuchadnezzar, to submit to them and not go through the hardship of obviously being besieged, starving to death quite literally. But Nebuchadnezzar knows that Jeremiah was trying to get the people to do the right thing. And so he chooses, gives him a choice of what he wants to do. You can either come with me to Babylon where I will take care of you or you can stay in, in Jerusalem, under the protection of Gedaliah. Jeremiah chooses to stay. Those who were not exiled, this, again, the text tells us, was the poorest of the land, then left Judah, because now Judah is a smoldering ruin, And went with Gedaliah to reform a new settlement in Mizpah. And if my geography is correct, that's on the other side of the Jordan. So they go to a new place to resettle. So other Judeans who have fled to other places hear that Gedaliah has reformed a new Judean community. So people have fled to Ammon and people had fled to Edom. People had even fled to Egypt. And now that they heard that Judea has been reformed in Mizpah, people come back. And they now sit with Gedaliah trying to, again, keep faithful and stay in the land as the covenant required them to do. And in particular, Gedaliah needed all these people to come in because... The harvest was due. And so it's not obviously without relevance because he sent out the call and people came and said, we need to start gathering the crops. And you know what? As we find ourselves in our present situation, we need people to bring in those crops. 
If we don't, we lose it. And obviously to set up the land for the next season of crops. So this was a way of keeping Israel in a place where it was able to continue to provide food. Now when you think about what will happen 70 years later, it would be nice to come back to Jerusalem or come back into Judea and find that food is still growing. And so it's a good plan. Let's keep in the land, let's keep the grounds tilled over so that we are able to continue on. So when those who come back from captivity have something to eat. Let me read a short excerpt from, 40, um, from Jeremiah 40, 11 to 12, and it says this. Likewise, when all the Judeans who are in Moab and among the Ammonites and in Edom and in other lands heard that the king of Babylon had left the remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikim, son of Shaphan, as governor over them, then all the Judeans returned from all the places to which they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah. And they gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. So now Johanan, the leader of the Judean militia, now warns in the tail end of chapter 40, warns Gedaliah that Ishmael is an agent for the Ammonite king. Now, this is particularly treacherous because Ishmael is actually part of the Judean royal family. But Gedaliah dismisses Johanan's intelligence that one of the people that have come back is actually going to assassinate him. This brings us to Jeremiah 41. And it now talks about a new rebellion, which is stoked by Ishmael. Then he, so Ishmael now comes to Gedaliah while he's sitting down and eating and strikes him down, kills him and his court and the Babylonian soldiers that were there to protect him. Ishmael then goes on a killing spree, killing a further 80 pilgrims who come to Mizpah and dumping their bodies in a cistern. So at all the time he is basically killing all these people and then dumping them in the sewer system, all the bodies and hiding them from sight. Ishmael then decides to spare some of the pilgrims who plead for their lives by revealing that they have food secretly hidden away. So Ishmael then takes the pilgrims and some of the remnant of the people along with the princesses, the prince, so this is again part of the royal family, as hostages. And he's now returning them and bringing them back to Ammon, who he is an agent for. Johanan then hears of Ishmael's betrayal and goes in pursuit of him. So remember, Johanan is, again, the militia. Not a proper army, but a militia. He now goes and in pursues Ishmael. He catches up to him, but Ishmael and his men escape, but the hostages are rescued. Johanan then gets, goes back to Mizpah to regather the rest of the people and brings them to Garuf. Now, Garuf is a particularly interesting place because this is the route to escape to Egypt. Verse 17 and 18 in Jeremiah 41 says this, And, when, and they went and stayed at Garuf, Shechem near Bethlehem, intending to go to Egypt because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them because Ishmael, the son of Netana, had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Hayakam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. So this is an interesting circumstance. By all means, Johanan has done the right thing. He has, to some extent, redeemed some integrity to the fact that Israel or Judea does not intend to rebel against the Babylonians but because of what they have seen over the last obviously several years they do not want to risk hanging around considering what Nebuchadnezzar might instruct his army to do they've done the right thing 
They've avenged Gedaliah's death, but they are, they've decided the best plan is to run. You can see why this captivated me, right? It's proper drama. The plot thickens. Jeremiah 42. Seeking the Lord or merely seeking affirmation. I've, I've entitled this. This is, this is, I've started to do this now because of Sister J. So if, you, if I start putting all little titles in there, but I'm not going to do the alliterations. <laughs> so, Jerem- so I'm summing that up. Seeking the Lord or merely seeking affirmation. This is chapter 42. And then, so Johanan then gathers the people to, Jer- to Jeremiah. So now Jeremiah pops out of the woodwork. He's not been mentioned in the last few chapters. And all of a sudden, they come to Jeremiah and they gathered around Jeremiah, who has been in the background for all the events there. But obviously, he was there with Gedaliah. So he must have been there and witnessed his death. And they asked him thus, and they said to Jeremiah the prophet, let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to the Lord your God for us, for all this remnant, because we are left with but a few, as your eyes see us, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. So they come specifically saying, Jeremiah, give us a word from God. Remember, they're already set on the road to Egypt. But they asked for help. So Jeremiah accepts their plea for help from God and promises them that he will tell them all that God replies to which they answer, whether it is good or bad. We will obey the voice of the Lord our God, whom we are sending you, that we, it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. After 10 days, Jeremiah returns with his answer to the people. So let me read it at length from chapter 42. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy before him. If you remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up, for I relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. I will grant you mercy that he may have mercy on you and let you remain in your, our, in your own land. But if you say we will not remain in the land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God and saying, no, we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall not see war or hear the sound of trumpet or be hungry for bread and we will dwell there, then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Israel of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you set your face to enter Egypt and to go to live there, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you. And there in the land of Egypt, and the, in the land of Egypt, and the famine of which you are afraid shall follow close after you to Egypt, and there you shall die. Reading a quote from um, Gordon McCulville's commentary on this text, it says this, If the people choose to go there, they will find once again that the way that seemed safe according to their own perception would in fact be the way of death. Jeremiah 43. The non-rebels start their own rebellion against God. Yohanan and the rest of the people, however, respond thus. So again, from verse 2 in Jeremiah 43, it says this. You are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans, that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. Again, reading from McColville's own commentary, he says this, Johanan and the others do not overtly refuse God's will. Instead, they claim to know better what it is. There is, of course, self-deception in this, and no authority 
The temptation to think that one's own interpretation of God's will is true, especially if it corresponds to what one desperately wants to believe, is real. This is real and it is modern. It's the, it's the modern dilemma, isn't it? This is one of the reasons why I say it's not about you sitting down there and kind of figuring out for yourselves. As much as obviously I want to be able to say sitting in your own Bible study is not a bad thing, but in and of itself, it has to come into the community in order to be tested. I remember um, one of the great um, cross-movement songs, isn't it? It's like, let's test it. You know, it's not about what you can sit and, you know, as I... is what what I commonly call breaking boards, isn't it? You're sitting there, you're breaking boards, and you think you're super strong. Well, come into the arena and test it. See if it holds up. Because as Bruce said, boards don't hit back. Come and test it. That's the truth. And we need the community in order to be able to test whether we are hearing from God. The people then make their way to Egypt, forcing Jeremiah to come with them. So as they arrive in Egypt, Jeremiah reaffirms his warning by way of an illustration that demonstrates that Babylon will soon come and overtake them where they think they have found safety. They have only prolonged the inevitable. Jeremiah, this is, and then we come to Jeremiah 44. So now we've got the context, haven't we? We're starting to say, all oh, right, okay, that now makes sense. There's a long narrative that now puts the perspective as to what was actually going on and why Jeremiah speaks in the terms he has. There is a lot going on in the hearts of the people that has caused him to say in the strongest possible ways the things that he has said. Jeremiah now offers a final warning to those that have fled Egypt fled to Egypt. It would also appear that he is also speaking to those who have taken up residence there before the group has arrived. So there was a, another community of, of Jews that were already living in Egypt and they go and join them. Hence they go to a specific place, a specific community as described in chapter 44. In verse 7, I think verse, in verse 7, Jeremiah cuts to the heart of the issue by making it clear that by running to Egypt, they have put the continuation of the covenant community in jeopardy. Verse 7, let me remind you, says this. And now thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, why do you commit this great evil against yourself to cut off from you man and woman, infant and child from the midst of Judah, leaving you no remnant? Hear what Jeremiah is saying. In choosing to save your own lives because you do not believe that Bab the Babylonians, who will eventually come and, find, and try to look for Gideliah and look for their soldiers, will, will not believe you. Because you've run in fear of your life, you have put the whole covenant community in jeopardy. I have made a provision for you to remain in the land so that eventually when I revive Israel, you are already here able to provide for them. And you're forfeiting that. You're forfeiting that future generation that would be looking to have a welcome. When you read, as we've, we've done obviously earlier this year, Ezra and Nehemiah, you see the hostility they had to endure by the foreigners that were already living in the area. That opposed the work of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. All that could have been avoided if these people decided to stay and keep a foothold and keep those fields tilling over. It made the work of future generations harder. But praise God, as we read Ezra and Nehemiah at the beginning of the week, they did it, right? But in spite of these people's decisions, 
In spite of it. God will build his church. That's why I have all confidence. Regardless of what we decide to do, God will build his church. But even in their disobedience, God still promises that a remnant will eventually return from Egypt. But not obviously like, you know, as we sung our first song this morning, like the, with the joy, you know, it was, I was glad when they said unto me, going to they'll be going back with their tails between their legs. Because they're not going back willfully, they're going back because Egypt has been decimated. That which they, the place where they thought they will find safety is gone. So it's with reluctance they return. Oh, well, I've got to go back then. Verse 28 says this, again, reminding us. And those who escape the sword shall return to the land of Egypt, return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, few in number. And all the remnant of Judah who came to the land of Egypt to live shall know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. So this is Jeremiah kind of sitting there and says, you will come, there a day will come when these words will come back to you and you will remember whose words will stand. Johannans and the people or mine? Reading again from McColville's commentary, he says this, the recurrence of the term remnant in, this, in the verse is meant to insist that God's purpose to continue with his people in the future will not be fulfilled through the group in Egypt. They've cut themselves off from that. He also states this, the allusion to a tiny remainder of the Jews who will return from Egypt are intended to show that it was not these that God furthered his plans for the people. The whole Egyptian escapade was under his wrath because it was an attempt at self-salvation. It would be shown terribly for what it was. Saving ourselves. Not thinking about the future. Not thinking about the sacrifice you can make for those who would eventually return. And we already know how hard it was for those who returned. The brazenness of the people to respond to Jeremiah with reference to the Queen of Heaven being their protector is witness to the hardness of the people's heart as well in resisting God. What they consider to be a blessing from the Queen of Heaven is really the afterglow of God's grace to them. They think that the Queen of Heaven was, all, was, was providing all this stuff, but what really has happened is that the afterglow of God's grace was shining upon them, but they were attributing it to somebody else. In much the same way, the afterglow of the West's Christian past is doing, much for, for, is, doing much, is doing more for them now than the secularists will ever give credit for. So many of the people, and again, when you look around yourself, so many even secular you know, scholars see the fact that it's actually our Christian past that is preserving Western culture more than the modernists, more than the atheists, more than foreign, foreign religions, more than mere government pragmatism. Many people are looking and saying, actually, it is our Christian heritage that has given us this wealth, has given us this influence. They will assume, much like these diaspora Jews, that modernity is doing the work of lifting us out of harm's way when they are really in the final embers of a lost faith in God. They, they still feel the warmth of what their forefathers believed, of the missionary works they did, the, the, the work of, of printing Bibles and translating it and, and bringing it to the world. The embers of their influence was not because... For those who are offended, not solely through colonialism, but through the fact that God was able to bring the message to the rest of the world through them. One of the reasons why we don't have to struggle with people who speak English wherever we go, 
in the world today. The gospel, the embers of the gospel are keeping us warm. But for how long? Their response does beg the question though. If you were so blessed by the queen of heaven in Judea, why have you run to Egypt? If you were so blessed, why, why are you here? Recontextualization. How does this relate to us now? There is a danger of trying to lift a text as it stands in history and try to make it marry into our present situation. I would advise against such an approach to scripture. There may be obvious parallels that, we, that could be helpful, but if we do not grasp what, I, what is known as the perlocution of the text, then we will miss on the text overall. The perlocution is... is what did the person intend for us to do once we heard this? The illocution is words, how words and what they mean individually. Locution is how when they're formed together, what genre do they make? Are they poetry? Are they narrative? Are they vows? Are they curses? And then the perlocution is, what does the person intend for you to do once you've heard such words in such order? What is the effect the writer is trying to encourage us to do? The fallacy of Islam is that it thinks that the authority of text is in the illocution, the actual words. No, actually, it's in the perlocution. What you preserve the text through translations in order to be faithful to the text as language evolves. How do I change this in such a way so that it remains current as words change over the years? So that's the fallacy. This nonsense about it's all in the illocution. You can't change the word. No. I want to be understood, so the perlocution has to be where I aim to try and understand what God is saying. So what is the general teaching point of the text? Well, first and foremost, I think it's all, it states, the rise of the Babylonian Empire was a world-altering event in which God was using, through his sovereign control, Isaiah Jeremiah, Ezekiel all testified to this fact as they pleaded with the Judeans to submit to the control rather than resist it to their own hurt. That's the first thing. The second thing, God has made a provision for those in exile in Babylon and in Judah to be a remnant that will keep the covenant alive in less than hospitable conditions. Get that, less than hospitable conditions. The next thing is those who have tried to avoid through the hard, to try to avoid going through the hard graft with the rest of the remnant will not experience the blessing of renewal when it comes. There is also the danger that those who have worked hardest to avoid the trials of God's people are idol worshippers at heart. So application. So using the points above, this is how we might see this text relate to us in our present time. So looking at that first point, the first thing I think that we are supposed to walk away from is that position of trust. I can trust God because of his sovereign control. 
Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We can trust him. All these events have not caught him unawares. He's not reeling and thinking, oh God, how am I going to do this? How am I going to? COVID is a world-altering event. Even though we could argue it need not have been, this is missing the point that it has nonetheless changed the way we live. We can sit and argue this, oh, well, the government need to make that decision, they could have done this. We might as well argue that, you know, Nebuchadnezzar could have not followed his dad and become a warlord, he could have become a baker, and then all of a sudden, that nothing would have changed, and what's the point? He decided to become a warlord, and he changed the world. As we go into Daniel, you'll see that even more so, that it was under the sovereign guidance of God that he done so. We have the leaders we have to make the decisions that they make simply because that's how God wants to do it. It will, I believe, be a humbling experience for the church. We are humbled. But it will also lead to its revival. Again, remember, you've got to put Ezra and Nehemiah in the background here. Actually, people will return and it will flourish. It will be difficult. It will be humbling. But it will happen. It will happen. So that's the first point, that trusting God. We can trust that even though he humbles us, he will revive us. Couldn't help thinking of that song, Revive Us Again. The Lamb that was slain, that sought us and bought us from sin's empty stain. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. The second point is that grace. He wants us to hear grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It is less than ideal to worship via digital media. But we can also discern God's grace through this as we adapt to the less than hospitable environment. To further add to this point, we can also see how the destruction of the temple, which was held as a place of idolatry, if you, again, if you look back to Jeremiah 7, would also work towards God's will that he had, that God's will that he had intended that this idea of worshipping for externals would turn into worship in the heart. So in that sense, the removal of the temple did not hinder God's purpose. He intended that the temple, as it is to now, is removed and that we now become the temple. Through Christ. Jeremiah 31, 33 already alludes to this, doesn't it? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The people weren't diminished for the lack of a temple. First Corinthians 3 reminds us that we are the temple of God in which Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And we may also find that our own ways of relating to God needs to be shook up so that we are not reliant on external objects or persons for our sanctification. This time has taught us to have to look dig deeper into God if we've been really honest. There's no brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so or pastor so-and-so to, to grab onto so easily. And we've had to kind of make our own meals. The final point 
our perlocution today is Jeremiah intends people to repent. Romans 13, 11 to 14 says this, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Some of you, if you're watching this later on in the day, <coughs> church, it's 11 o'clock. <coughs> for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's time to repent. If this has been us, So finally, there are those who have decided to give up on trusting in God and decided to make their own place of safety. The danger of this is that we do not make use of God's provision as limited as it that may be. And this brings our own idolatry to the forefront as our trust in God through difficult times is unable to take the strain, so therefore it gets choked. Matthew 13, 7, 13, 7 reminds us of this, isn't it? Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. The problem is that we can make a resolve to only follow God in ideal conditions. And if God fails to make us feel safe in those less than ideal circumstances, then we believe that we have every right to take matters into our own hands. Just like Johanan, right? No, 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 I don't like that. I don't like that. My, I, God already knows my terms. And if they're not met, that's idolatry. You trump God. Jeremiah's warning in chapter 44 is aimed at those who are disengaged with the covenant community waiting for a more ideal time to recommit to the community is not a policy, not a good policy, as it puts what should be primary, a primary responsibility into a secondary or a tertiary one. You know, God comes down the pecking order of other things that we consider to be more important. Let me end with a couple of scriptures from Hebrews, those that we are familiar with, but nonetheless, I believe we need to hear. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near. I want us to kind of draw near. I want us to look at that not as some kind of metaphorical draw near, but a physical draw near as well. Let us draw near to one another to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Don't isolate yourself. Don't run off. Let's draw near around the throne room of God. My second is from the same, book, the same letter, and it's Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. There's that draw near again, right? With a true heart, in full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to draw near. We need to draw near. We have a duty to respond to the needs of the church. And not merely because it's a body of people, but because it's God's church. As we draw near to God, we draw near to his people. It's, it's the simple logic of even John, right? If you say you love God and you don't love his people, the love of God is not in you. To draw near to God is to draw near to his people. So let us consider how this weighs upon us, how this refocus our minds and help us as we think about where our responsibilities lie for the future. Amen. Father, this is your church. And Lord, I know you love it. And if any of us doubt it, dear Lord God, then let us go back to our text and look at the cross as displayed in the gospel, as defined throughout the gospels and into the, the, the further testaments, Lord, of how significant this event was, so much so that you died for it. As we consider the cross as, a, as, as an evidence of your love for your church, dear Lord God, help us today to remember that the love of your church is not something that is supposed to be some abstract doctrine that sits in our heart. It's supposed to draw us to your church. If Jesus loved it so much and he loved me so much, then let me share that love. Let me draw near to my brothers and sisters. I, I, it's been so long. And if I'm realistic, Lord, I know I've missed this. I know it's been easy at home. I know it's somehow when, you know, you're managing children or you've got a busy work life, all of a sudden, life became a little bit more easier. But Lord, you sustained us through an inhospitable time, Lord. And, and Lord, who knows what inhospitable times we may have to experience yet. Lord, what can we say if we don't take opportunity of the, you know, take advantage of the opportunities that we have even right now to draw near when we can Lord forgive us help us to repent if we have done so Lord remind us that your grace has been sufficient for us as it was for Paul so it is for us as well Lord God your grace was sufficient for us to be able to go through that time Yes, Lord, it was less than ideal for Israel to be in Babylon. Yes, it was less than ideal for us to be worshipping via digital media. But yet, Lord God, you made that provision that in there that people will not be without your witness. Lord God, you even sent them Ezekiel to come amidst, to amongst the Babylonian community, Lord, and, and encourage them. Even Daniel, Lord God. And Lord, we can trust you. COVID has changed the way we do life, Lord. And maybe permanently. But yet, Lord God, your sovereign hand was over that situation. As it was over Boris, dear Lord God. So as it was over, Lord God, Nebuchadnezzar. Every world-altering event, dear God, your hand, dear Lord God, has used it for good, Lord. As, as Joseph so rightly says, dear Lord God, what these people have meant for evil, Lord God, may be true but Lord you meant it for good so that all these people are saved this day so Lord we're thankful that your provision has been made provision to trust you provisions for grace and provision to repent help us to draw near Lord as only you can in Jesus name Amen 
Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.